Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele. In this episode, we've off-lamented the ongoing IPification of the beer world. Whether this year's GABF, Atascadero's Wild Fields Brewing, won Small Brewery of the Year by meddling with three malt-forward beers. I'm sitting down with brewery co-founder and head brewer Ryan Fields to discuss what he thinks about when making a malt-oriented pint, plus a bonus IPA and sour beer tip, because why not? But first, a message from our sponsors. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The Seltzer Sensation is here, and our friends at Mangrove Jacks have specifically formulated their newest craft series yeast for making home-brewed hard seltzer. The Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer yeast and nutrient produces a clean, neutral flavor and aroma profile, allowing you to get creative with your hard seltzer recipe. Homebrewers can use this blend of yeast and nutrient in their own seltzer recipes, or choose from one of the new Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer recipe kits, which are formulated to make up to five gallons of refreshing 4.5% seltzer. The kits come in three thirst-quenching varieties, Raspberry Breeze, Lemon and Lime Smash, and Pineapple Sunset. things going for you uh, up there at the brewery uh, it's going good definitely the last like six months have been way better than the rest of the time we've been open so it's finally started to get in the groove a little bit so when did you guys open we opened december 2019 so three months before hit the fan yeah just in time for fun we haven't really had any like we we don't know what normal looks like basically so we can only go up from here, I feel like. that. Lord willing, the creek don't rise. I, I imagine you're still getting adjusted to all the logistics. Yeah. The unsung part of uh, brewing that most homebrewers never have to deal with, the actual idea of scheduling and making sure you understand how to keep everything moving at maximum efficiency. Uh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, the brewing, honestly, is like the easy part for me at this point in my career. It's like running a business is the, that's the learning curve right now. Ryan, why don't you tell everybody how you actually got started brewing? Uh, well, I... Started home brewing in college. I was going to UCSD and just kind of got into it with some friends. Like uh, my uncle had been home brewing my whole life, so I kind of like seen it uh, growing up, and just kind of fell in love with beer. Kind of fell out of love with what I was studying in college, which was physics at the time. I uh, did manage to graduate and get the physics degree, but 
I had walked into Lost Abbey one night uh, over in Escondido and kind of just walked out with a job offer just on the bottling line. Or, and they kind of just like, hey, you want a job? I was like, okay, that sounds like a fun part-time gig. And not really expecting it to turn into a career, but I started there and it was kind of the right place at the right time. That was like 2008 in San Diego. The beer scene was just blowing up and kind of just got put on the fast track. So I got to meet a lot of people in the industry, got to learn from some of the best, Tommy Arthur, and then moved over to Pizza Port San Clemente, got to be the head brewer there for a few years, got to learn from a bunch of guys over there. And then uh, I had developed a love for sour beer working at Lost Abbey with Tommy. So then Gabe uh, from Beachwood, he approached me and I kind of approached him because I knew he was starting a barrel program for Beachwood. And uh, they asked me to help start Beachwood Blendery, which was Beachwood's sour beer program. So I told him, I, we just, Jackie and I, I had met Jackie while Lost Abbey, and we had we just started a family, so we had our first kid. I told Gabe, I was like, I can give you four or five years in LA, but eventually we want to raise our kids up on the Central Coast. So there's kind of a timeline built into that the whole time. And then, yeah, we just found a way to get our own thing started up here and live up on the Central Coast, which is where we want to be. All right. Well, now that we've already started talking, you might as well tell people exactly who you are. Okay. Well, I am Ryan Fields. I am co-owner of Wildfields Brewhouse up in Atascadero, California, which is right in between San Luis Obispo and Paso Robles. I was going to say, your neighbors up in Paso may also be names that people know, like Firestone Walker and, and Silva. Yep. <laughs> For sure. And then over in San Luis, there's Liquid Gravity and There Does Not Exist, a couple other new breweries that are doing well for themselves, too. Central Coast Brewing also. So you you leave L.A. after a couple of years. And as somebody who's lived in L.A. now for 26 years? Good Lord. I can totally understand. Yeah. Well, I was also from this area, too. I wasn't born and raised in LA or anything like that. Well, I mean, look, I was born and raised in Orlando, Florida. So, I mean, you go up to Atascadero because that's the, the homeland. What does the picture look like for a, a Tascadero from a brewing perspective? So the reason we chose a Tascadero, I mean, so I have family up here. So we wanted somewhere in the Central Coast just because we knew we needed that kind of support structure when having kids and trying to open a brewery. And we just both love living up here. So we were looking around different towns in the Central Coast and Atascadero, the city had decided that they were going to be the location for the Central Coast Brewers Guild Beer Festival. And we're putting a bunch of energy and focus into that. And so it was the first year they were putting it on. And this is when we were putting out feelers. So we're like, oh, that's a, that seems like a, like a green light. So let's go check that out and maybe meet with the city and see what they're all about. So we went up and poured Beachwood Blendery beer at the Central Coast Brewers Guild Fest and met with the city, and they just had this big plan for Tascadero and, and how much like they wanted to just get more development going, get more nightlife going, and they pointed us in this direction of this building that was pretty perfect for us, and we could just tell that they were going to be kind of an ally and a supportive part of it, which is kind of a big deal when you're opening a business in a city that they're on board with it and want you to be there. Yeah. It's certainly a whole lot easier to have uh, the help of the government than to have them fighting against you. Yeah. So we just saw a lot of potential demand here. Atascadero has always been a little behind Paso and San Luis, but it has the population and it has a lot of families. So we're like, let's 
give all these families that live in Atascadero something to do. Yeah, besides, there's already too much wine up there, so more beer. Exactly, yeah. We, like we say, you know, Pasa going to have wine, Atascadero. We're going to be focused on beer. <laughs> How many years did you spend homebrewing? It didn't sound like uh, it was a lot before you made the jump into into professional. Yeah, no, I was never that great of a homebrewer, honestly. I was probably two or three years of homebrewing before I jumped into pro brewing. And as soon as I was still homebrewing a little bit when I was on the bottling line and uh, kind of learning the ropes. But after about a year, I got moved into the brewery. And at that point, I was kind of like, well, I'm spending all of my time brewing at work. I don't really want to brew at home at this point. Yeah, I'm always amazed whenever I talk to some professional brewers who still continue to brew at home. And it's like, okay, this is your thing then. You said, okay, you weren't that great of a home brewer. Obviously, with the hardware that you're collecting as a professional brewer, that's not the case at the professional level. Is there something that you felt changed other than just having access to better tools? Or is it just really sort of experience? I mean, it's... I was just young and didn't put that much energy into it at the time. I was still going to school, so I didn't have that much time. I didn't have any money to spend on that good of equipment. So I was getting better for sure. I had like I got uh, into all grain, and I had like a nice little converted uh, half barrel keg as a mash ton. So I was like going the right direction. But as soon as I I was twenty two when I got the job at Lost Abbey, so. Um, I think I could have been a good homebrewer over time, but then I just ended up jumping to pro brewing and just kind of learned learned in that realm and got better got better as I went. Well, you said, well, if I'm going to learn, I'm going to get paid for it. So Exactly. <laughs> now, you had indicated that you had all that experience at Blundering, obviously Lost Abbey and at um, Pete Sport. Pete Sport. Good Lord, brain. That's a pretty broad field of beers that are being brewed. I know we're going to talk about multi beers in a moment here, but if you had to, if you had to stand up and say these beers are my wheelhouse, what what is in your wheelhouse? Yeah, I would say, I mean, definitely West Coast IPA. I've just been making that for a long time ever since. I mean, at Lost Abbey, I was still making the port brewing beers, so a lot of Wipeout, Mongo, all that kind of stuff. And then definitely while I was at Pizza Port, that was a big part of the, the portfolio. And then I had even gleaned a little bit of knowledge while at Beachwood, even though I wasn't making those beers. I was still around enough to glean some information about that. So I'd say that. And then Lambic-inspired beer, definitely really focused in on that. While I was at Blendry, basically just a dedicated four years of my life to making one style of beer, which is that Lambic inspired base beer and then adding fruit and other ingredients now and then. So definitely really honed my skill on that and learned a lot and gained a lot of information on that. And then uh, other than that, now that I have, we have wild fields and I kind of get to make whatever I want. I've been trying to branch out and really focus in on some other styles. Like right now, We've been making a lot of lagers ever since we opened, and I had not a lot of experience with that before, so I'm really trying to hone that in. And then Malty Beers definitely got a good amount of experience at Pizza Port because they have a lot of good Malty Beers that we were making there, but still just trying to kind of dial that in and just figure it out even more. Okay, so before we get into the Malty Beers, two quick tips, one each for... The best tip that you can give somebody for making an IPA and the best one for making a Lambic-inspired beer. Yeah, okay. For IPA, I mean, minimizing oxidation is definitely, I think, one of the most important parts of making hoppy beer. I feel like the most common flaw 
I pick up in IPAs is oxidation. Also, these days, if you're dry hopping warm, making sure you're not getting diacetyl on that secondary fermentation, the, the hop creep. And then for making Lambic-inspired beers, I had to pick one. I mean, I think aged hops are underrated a little bit. Like, you definitely need to have a, a good aged top, and then you need to have a bacterial strain that can handle the IBU. So you need to have a decent IBU to make a good Lambic-inspired beer. You can't have a zero IBU uh, Lambic-inspired beer. So you need at least in, like, the 15 to 30 IBU range and a bacteria that can handle that, which I would say you could go with PDO and train it up train it up so it's a little hop tolerant. Got to keep pushing that lacto back a little bit with the hops. Well, the lacto is just not going to handle the hops. They're, they're just going to not want to do anything. <laughs> After all, that's kind of the big uh, the big positive impact of for hops and beer before everybody decided we like the flavors of them. Exactly, yeah. So now the reason why we've been pushing people towards the idea that we're going to talk about multi beers is even though the brewery's only been open for a short period of time, Y'all have been winning a lot of hardware around the world of multi beers to the point where even this year, you guys won. It was GBF Brewery of the Year for like was five hundred to a thousand barrels. Yep. Yeah. So if people haven't paid attention to the GBF, they have like Brewery of the Year, but it's tiered out by size so that you don't constantly have somebody like say Firestone Walker coming in and crushing the competition of like the small people. Yeah. It's like weight class for boxing. The thing that drove that win, that propelled that win, was three gold medals, all of them for multi-styles of beer. What were the three medals in? So it was for our Pine Mountain Monolith, which we won in the English Brown Ale category, uh, the Three Bridges Brown Ale, which we won in the American Style Brown category, and then Magic Swirling Sip, which was in the Scottish Ale category. And we also got gold medals for all three of those at the World Beer Cup last year as well. So, in other words, they don't suck. They've been doing well for us, that's for sure. <laughs> was unexpected, but but we're definitely rolling with it, and I'm definitely stoked that we're winning for these beers because it's fun to make and kind of it's not it's a style that not as many people are making anymore. Too. Given the sort of trend of IPification of everything, how are these beers received by the audience? You know, because after all, medals are one thing, but you got to sell the beer in order to keep keep the place open. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing well with them. Even before the medals, we were having brown ale on pretty often, and people around here were digging it. I think part of the reason we like the Central Coast is it's a little less trendy than some of the bigger cities. So people up here aren't necessarily chasing the coolest thing on Instagram or TikTok. Like they're just coming in and they're like, tell me what's good. Like, what, sh- what should I try? They're kind of that wine tasting crowd that just wants you to tell them all about it and they'll get a tasting flight. And they're pretty receptive to new things and also traditional beers. So we, we get a lot of people that ask for reds and browns and stouts. And uh, It's always done pretty well for us up here. We've never felt pressured just to make a bunch of trendy beers. So that helped as far as developing some of these recipes. And then now that we've been winning awards for them, people are coming in just to try these beers because they've heard about it. And it's definitely helping sell the beers into retail as well in keg form. We're getting a pretty good turnover and we're we're able to have pretty much all the time, the two brown ales and the Scottish ale on tap at all times right now. Yeah. So we we can, right now we have, we also won a medal for our Mexican lager, uh, so we have four beers that won medals and a flight is four taster glasses for us. So we have like a 
gold medal flight that we can uh, market to right now. That is absolutely perfect. Given the, uh, what we said about, hey, you know, everything is becoming an IPA, there's a lot of focus on hop technology, hop use, hop technique. And I don't think we talk a lot about malt. I've been playing around, uh, listeners will know, I've been playing around with a lot of craft malt. I've been playing around with a lot of heritage malts because I really enjoy what those can bring to the table. For you, when you're structuring one of these more malty beers, like your browns, what are you keeping in mind? I mean, like it's pretty easy with IPA to think, okay, well, I got to I got to shove the malt as far to the side as I can in order to show the hops. But here, you've got to show off the malt, and how do you how do you how do you polish that in such a way that that it really sings? Yeah, I mean, I'm still I'd say I'm still kind of working on our techniques and figuring that all out. But usually, I'll start with the base malt that's like something like a Maris Otter, or like Golden Promise. Sometimes uh, it just gives you a little bit more bready kind of nice malt backbone versus just using like two row or pilsner and then try to build on top of that and i personally like drier beer i think most of our the people that drink beer here like seem to enjoy drier beer too so i think it's about structuring it where you're going to get a nice body and flavor but not have it be overly sweet I think that's something that's changed in American craft brewing and home brewing over the years. I mean, like when I first started doing it was 1990. Well, my first batch of homebrew was back when I was in college, and that was 1993. Um, but back then, I think even with a lot of craft beer, you had a lot of sweetness. I yeah. remember uh, Tom, uh, Tommy and I had spent many, many uh, pint complaining about the fact that a lot of American brewers who were making Belgian-styled beers were making them way too sweet. So I think a lot of people have kind of caught on to the idea of like, well, okay, now we need to make these less less sweet. So it, it sounds like to me one of your keys is, okay, choose a really well-developed base malt so that you have character, but not necessarily a lot of sugar. Yeah, I think drinkability is definitely key for pretty much any style. But I think especially with these maltier beers, if people are going to come and drink a couple pints, you know, it's got to be a... It's got to be drinkable. All right. So good base malt. What about the specialty malts? Are you doing, like, do you have any rules about that? Like, I know a lot of people get very uh, finicky about the amount of crystal or, or caramels in their beers. Do you do anything yeah. about that? Uh, I mean, I like to keep it pretty simple. For our, we, do, we have a 10 barrel system. Most of our, like, if a beer is in like a five, 6% range, we're somewhere around six or 700 pounds. So I can do, I like to do even bags, off, honestly. So, not getting too complex with it. Usually, I really like for the crystal kind of malt element, I've been using a lot of Caramunich Type 3. It's like a 60 Levabond crystal malt, and it just seems to work really well for our kind of brown, red, malty beers. I usually use like a little bit of Carafoam, but not too much. And then I really like pale chocolate because it, it gives you some of that color, but it's it's really low on the roast and astringency. Is there a reason that, I mean, two of those three that you listed were German malts. Is there a reason that you go for the, the German style uh, caramels or? Uh, I mean, I'm just kind of going off what, what has, what works for me, I guess. I don't really look too much into like, uh, what is, is this traditional because of where it's come from? I mean, I've just been experimenting a lot and just have landed on the, th- the fact that I really like that malt. So I've been using it. I use a lot of biscuit malt too. I've just started making beers with it and really enjoyed it. So I kept using it just kind of trial and error type style, I guess you could say. By the way, I love the fact that you add 
evidence to my argument about when you're doing recipe design to think about like how professional breweries do it, where it's even amounts. It's not like, hey, you know, we got two ounces of this or a third of a pound of this. It's, yeah, that's roughly a sack or a yeah. half sack. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I've been arguing that with people for years. But when you're looking at those Caribbean do you have like, I know you said you're, you're playing around with it. I mean, do you have like sort of a ratio that you kind of target? Let's see. It looks like on average, it's around like eight or 9% for our like brown multi beers. And that, and again, that's with the Caramunics and that sort of thing. So yeah, that's for Caramunic type three. And then if I'm going to do like biscuit malt, it'll probably be a, a similar amount. Or if I'm using oats or carafoam or something like that, probably be using those in about 8% increments usually. And again, I mean, I think some of that just works out at your size for where sack lands and, or half yep. sack. All right. We got good, strong base malt restrained amount of a character malt when you're looking at these do you tr- what do you think about like like are you trying to layer in malts or are you sort of trying to keep it more focused in terms of the number of ingredients for these beers it's like kind of in between i guess i would say i'm looking at some recipes here and it looks like on average i'm using about five or six different malts total so like i was going to share with you guys our pine mountain monolith brown ale recipe so that's seventy percent Maris Otter. That's eight and a half percent of these three oats, Carafoam, Caramunic Type Three, and then it's three percent pale chocolate and one and a half percent regular chocolate. Uh, so trying to get a lot of your color out of the pale, and then just a tiny touch of roast. Yeah, so mainly adding that pale chocolate and chocolate just just to like bump up the color, but not have enough to where you're actually tasting any like much chocolate or roast like this beer comes out really kind of nutty and it's just like a it's one of our more drinkable malty beers like i this was one that i made not necessarily going for a style necessarily i was the first time i brewed this beer i was just like i want to make a brown ale for the summer where people are just gonna really want to drink this in the summertime just like really a little bit lighter on the body and just super drinkable, but also flavorful. How strong of a beer is it? Uh, so this one, usually we target 13 and a half Play-Doh or 1055. Mm-hmm. And then it lands at three and a half Play-Doh or 1014 and ends up at 5.4 ABV. Not quite a session, but definitely not a, a super stonker. Yeah, just kind of right in that, that drinkable, regular, medium range ABV. The American average. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so we got the the malts there set up. When you're looking, I know a lot of people will talk about water in relation to to how they try and structure a malty beer. Yeah, you because know, of course we have those levers, right? You know, you got, yeah, chloride and sulfate, and what do we do in order to make things happen? One, what sort of water are you starting with? Are you, I know it's become very vogue for people to start with RO systems, but what are you doing? Yeah. So water has been a huge part of beer here at Wildfields. I never really dove that deep into water chemistry. I didn't, like it just wasn't something I was really taught that much or we were doing that much at any other spots I worked. I picked up a little bit of knowledge at Beachwood because uh, Julian and the crew there were definitely doing a good amount of water chemistry. So I was trying to like pick up some of that uh, for different styles of beer, even though I wasn't making them. And then when we started this project up in Tascadero, it's all groundwater up here. So it is extremely alkaline and there's just a ton of, uh, it's just really high TDS 
of pretty much everything, uh, but especially bicarbonate. So I knew that if we're going to be making Pilsners and IPAs, like we just couldn't use the city water. So we put in an RO system, but I also piped in some carbon filtered city water to the brew stand so I could blend because I knew that that water would work well for the darker beers because you want that bicarbonate to offset all the roasted malts. So we're able to basically start out with a different uh, blend of carbon filtered city water and RO for each beer. So for like a Pilsner, we'll do like 90% RO, 10% city water. For something like an Imperial Stout, I might mash in with 100% city water and then sparge with 50-50 RO city water. For something like a brown ale, usually, see, for the Pine Mountain Monolith at least, so I'll do 50% RO, 50% our city water, mm-hmm. and then for mash, and then I'll add just a touch of gypsum and calcium chloride. And then for sparge, we're doing 70% RO, 30% city water. And I calculated most of these numbers using Bruin water, uh, mm-hmm. which is like a, a it's B-R-U apostrophe N water. It's a spreadsheet that you can get online. And we target the, I want to say the brown medium for this one. Yeah, we're, we're good friends with Martin and uh, okay. had him on the show before. I assumed you knew what it was. But. <laughs> yeah, in fact, brewing water is what I use here at, at home as well. Yeah, it's an awesome program. It makes life a lot easier. Uh, and particularly, as you said, water chemistry itself is sort of weird. A lot of breweries, they don't necessarily put that much thought into it, at least not down the line. It's like somebody comes up with a protocol, and then yeah. that's what everybody just follows. Like, okay, you got to add 700 milliliters of lactic acid to the to the sparge tank, you know, yeah. and, and go from there. Yeah, I pers- I definitely think that water chemistry, it's what t- took me from being a good brewer to being like a really good brewer. I think it just like really ups the quality of the beers when you can really dial in the water. Who would have figured that the ingredient that makes up 95% of your beverage would be that important? Right. right. <laughs> you, you're tending to play with the, with the mix, and it sounds like, you know, with these darker beers, the fact that your city water has a high bicarbonate level to it is actually come, comes in handy. Definitely. When you're looking downstream so we got through the water uh, you know i'm guessing you're all single infusion style mashing because of a small system yeah we're just a little pub system so yeah it's all single infusion when you're looking at hops now we said i mean two of these are sort of british styles or british influence styles and one's american style how does how does your hopping choice change between those two worlds and still trying to emphasize the malt character yeah Quite a bit. Uh, for the English brown ales of the Pine Mountain, we actually use Hallertau Mittelfru, another German ingredient. <laughs> uh, but that's just because I love that hop. It's, my, it's probably my favorite noble hop. And I think it just lends well to that beer because Hallertau Mittelfru just it has like a nice noble character, but it's just, it's not aggressive. And it's really kind of, I just, I just found like it fits that beer really well. I feel like EKG would work just as well uh, in that beer, but I just had landed on Hallertad Middle Fruit for that one. Now, when you're doing that in the in the sort of less hop forward styles, are you still doing the Middle Fruit like as your bittering charge too? Or yeah, so for I do for the brown the English brown ale a 90 minute edition that's about 15 IBU. A 15-minute edition, that's about 8 IBU, and then a Whirlpool edition, that's about 4 IBU. Interesting, because I mean, we are, after all, like 
I feel like a lot of people, including myself, have, have sort of shifted over time to have this philosophy of like less vegetable matter in the kettle as much as possible. And so, like, you know, because middle fruit is not a very high alpha acid hop. And so, you know, it's a little bit of a throwback to have that lower alpha acid hop in there as your bittering charge, too. But then again, you're not trying to get a lot of IBU, so. Yeah, and this that's part of the thing is this one's pretty, it's like 27 IBU. So if uh, for the American brown, which is a little heavier on the bitterness, we'll use a, a little bit stronger alpha hop for the bittering edition. And then for that one, you use a Cascade for a Whirlpool and a pretty big charge of Cascade at the Whirlpool just to give it that kind of American uh, hop character that you want in an American brown. So if the the English style comes in at, like, say, 27 IBUs in that, that mid-20s, mid, uh, low-30s area, where, do, where does the American go? Uh, I want to say it's around like 40. Nothing like, cra- like crazy high, but definitely higher. And then also it's a lot of the Cascades in the Whirlpool, so we're just looking for, like, that hop kind of flavor also, that kind of citrusy hop character. More oils. Yeah. And but again, almost seems like a, sort of a simpler hop regimen than with the English one, right? Yeah, I think I don't have that recipe. Let me see if I pull it up. Yeah, I think that one actually only has the two hop editions. It uses more hops, but yeah, only in two editions. Easier brew day, more hop character. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, you know, so we got the the hops still relatively restrained, even in the American version where you're still trying to push more oil, which, like I said, is sort of the the thing today. When you're doing your ferments, are you using the same yeast strain all the way through for all these? Or Yeah, so we, I mean, just struggling through a pandemic and having times where we just kind of slowed down the brewing a ton. Uh, we just didn't really have the money or ability to get a bunch of different yeast strains in. So we kind of landed on basically one ale strain and one lager strain for basically all the beers that we make. So our ale strain is California ale yeast from White Labs. And then the lager strain we use is uh, Bohemian lager yeast from Y Yeast. Mm-hmm. And those are both just like two very versatile strains that can you can make lots of different styles with. Uh, we will do some Belgian beers usually once a year because I'll order yeast and I'll try to get as many beers out of that one pitch as I possibly can in the summer. But for the most part, yeah, it's just those, those two yeast strains. So given that you're using an American strain, right. And I think we usually think of Cal ale as being neutral, right. Yeah. Yeah, very, very neutral yeast strain, much more hop forward when you're trying to make something like your English style. Are you doing anything to manipulate the, the apparent yeast character, or are you just trying to let it, that Englishiness ish ish come through from malt choice and hop choice. Yeah. I'm not really doing anything different on the fermentation. If it's like a initial pitch, I'll might ferment it a little warmer and maybe on average will ferment like a degree or two warmer, but I'm not really looking for a ton of character from the yeast. If, if anything, it, yeah, we're just looking for it to do its job and kind of be in the background and just let the malt shine and do its thing. And the hops. And I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily have thought that that was going to work originally, especially for what judges want. Honestly, the first time that we, so the first medal we won was GABF 2021, and it was for the Pine Mountain Monolith Brown Ale. 
the English brown ale category. And I almost didn't enter it because I was like, I don't know if it's Englishy enough. So, but it was just, it was one of those last minute ones I just threw on there. I was like, we'll see what happens. And it was only one that won. So I was like, hmm, maybe we're onto something. So next time we threw another brown ale in and the Scottish ale and lo and behold, the judges seem to like that. So it's amazing how sometimes if you try and outthink the judges, you'll you'll do worse for yourself. I've I've joked with people that one of the best of shows I won in a competition once was I entered a barley wine I hated. And I just had a couple of spare bottles of it laying around. I went, eh, okay, fine, I'll hear you. Why not? And that won the best of show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny how that works. So the competition, I feel like it's a lot a lot of it's about statistics. You kind of just first off you gotta keep trying and, try and enter as many as you can and kind of just see what works and kind of go from there. So we've gotten through fermentation. Do you package everything to sort of the same standard CO2 level or do you try and take it so that your English and Scottish beer has lower CO2? I might go a little bit lower on these, but usually we're targeting somewhere around like 2.5, 2.6 sort of standard draft volume yeah just because if we go too much higher than that on anything people might have some trouble pouring it on their draft systems and um i feel like these beers are that's where i would want them anyway right around that range but then even some of the other beers hoppier beers we might carve them a little higher for in-house because we have a flow restrictor faucets and everything's short draw um, <laughs> but when you're selling kegs to people, you don't want to go too high on the volumes. And conversely, you don't want to go too low because then you'll get people do weird things where they bump up the CO2 and the next thing you know, like everything comes foamy because they've had it sitting on high CO2 pressure for a while. Yeah. It's amazing. It, it's amazing to me how much American packaging and carbonation and the like is all driven around trying to fit into the sort of standard draft profile. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we were just making beer for ourselves, it might be a little different, but we, even though we're not a distribution brewery and we're focused on our pub, we still sell at least three quarters of the beer we make out into distribution, just self-distribution. Yeah. I mean, it makes, makes perfect sense. Um, yeah. you, you can only get so many people through the, the brewery doors and up to the, up to the bar every day. Yeah. But it is funny because it, it it even impacts cans, right? So as you'll find out when we do the happy hour together, I'll, I pay a lot of attention to that sort of stuff and watch what happens with cans because I've noticed so many breweries out there, they'll can like say a Saison and it's at a much lower carbonation than I would consider to be ideal, but it's because all the canning machines are set up to do 2.5 to 2.75 or so. Yeah. And anything outside of that just causes massive loss. So, yeah, it's like, sure. it, it is funny. The tyranny of packaging uh, induced by just a weird standard that nobody talks about. Right. We're actually thinking about for some specialty beers, bringing some 22 ounce bombers back just for fun, just like small runs of it here and there. So we don't have to, because we do big canning runs with the mobile canner. So we can't just like make a few cans here and there. We have to do like big runs. So our thought was maybe we'll we'll bring the 22 ounce bomber back for like the brown ales. So we just kind of always have them available to go. We're going to bring back the dinner bottle. Remember, remember yeah. when stone tried to try to brand that? Yeah. Look at <laughs> 20, sure. 22 ounce bottle. It's a dinner bottle. What? Yeah. When you're making these, uh, just to wrap up a couple of questions here to get you back on your, your Friday way. When you're making a malt forward beer, like these three that we're talking about here, is there anything that you try to particularly avoid? 
Uh, I mean, I think overall, I'm just looking for balance, right? So Trish, trying not to overdo it on any single ingredient um, and making sure everything just like melds together well and making sure nothing like overly stands out. So uh, making sure you're not using too much chocolate malt to the point where you're getting more roast or a little bit of astringency, just using the right technique, hitting all the numbers, definitely making sure that IBU doesn't get too high. I feel like it's always easy to add a little too many hops, I guess. So just being restrained on your, your hop usage and yeah, just like honestly, just keeping it simple and not getting overly complex with it. Don't try and be too clever. Yeah. Exactly. All right. And so earlier I asked you, you know, for your primary tip for, for making an IPA, a primary tip for making a Lambic style beer, primary tip for making a malt forward beer. Hmm. I mean, I think nailing the water profile definitely has seemed to be one of the, the big key ingredients for us just making sure it doesn't get too acidic in your mash or the final pH, like just trying to keep tabs on that pH and making sure you have some bicarbonate or something in there to buffer. I would say that's probably my one tip. And then just, yeah, not getting too complex with the malt dill um, and just having like a good, a good solid base malt that you really like. You know, it's funny that you mentioned like the acidic part, because I think since so many brewers nowadays seem to, land almost all their beers between say about two to five SRM kind of skewing anything darker. Yeah. I think a lot of people have forgotten about, you know, making sure that you have appropriate buffering in your water for, as you add these more acidic, darker malts to everything, which will again be my time to shout out what Martin Brungard's advice to American homebrewers is, which is don't try and use calcium carbonate to buffer your water. Use slaked lime. Yeah, we, we definitely use the, the pickling lime or yeah, uh, quite a bit in the dark beers, not in the brown ales, but definitely in the, the darker ones. All right. Well, and again, we talked a little bit about the, uh, the pine mountain monolith, uh, and you gave us some recipe uh, tips for that. And we'll include those in, in show notes so that people can go off and try and make their own version or at least be inspired by, by what you're doing. Cause again, the recipe is only one small part of the brewing process. Yep. The rest of the magic happens in the mists that are not written down. Any last thoughts? I think we hit pretty much all the points as far as uh, my experience making these beers. I mean, I'll definitely kind of just give some more quick details on our spot up here. We are, we do have a full restaurant and we're super family friendly. We got a full arcade. We have mini bowling lanes. So we're a great spot uh, right off the 101 to stop if you're on like a family road trip and you need a break or or this is your final destination. Um, that definitely feels like a little bit of a port brewing inspired. Uh, definitely pizza port inspired very much. We're, we basically, I, we told Vince and Gina, like, we're basically starting a pizza port without pizza, just seeing it. Uh, <laughs> but they've been super supportive and they're awesome. Uh, also, a huge shout out to my partner in life and business, Jackie. Definitely would never have done this project without her. She is the boss. She runs the place. I basically make the beer and help out on the floor and all the all the ways I can. 
but yeah, more of the operations and she's the president and CEO. So definitely could not do this without her. Like I could see myself doing a brewery. I could see myself running a brewery, but the second you had any sort of taproom staff or worse restaurant staff to it, I'd be like, nope, sorry, I'm out. Yeah, we have 20, around like 20 employees. So it's definitely a lot of, a lot of management. And that's probably, I would say probably the hardest part of running the business is just the, yeah, just the management side of it. Absolutely. All right. And so again, y'all are located in Atascadero right off the 101. Go kind of, I kind of want to say the part of the gateway to Steinbeck country. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of what I always think of with the Tascadero, that, that whole area. But it, a lovely place to visit. And uh, uh, it's not like you can't actually do a little brewery crawl there either. Yeah. Uh, the Central uh, Coast has got a lot of a lot of good breweries now. Well, and I was going to say, Paso is literally just up the road, like not even that far. Yeah. Uh, go, go to uh, Wild Fields. And like I said, we'll include uh, recipes in the show notes. And uh, yeah, get yourself some good malty beer. You know that I'm a big fan of those. So make sure you drink them so that people keep making them. Yeah, we'll have them on tap, I guarantee. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at what it takes to make a malt-oriented beer. Now, you can take some of Ryan's tips and run away and go make the best malt bomb that you can think of. And just let me know about it, please. So now remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the HA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is still TBD. Now, until next time, remember the brew is out there and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. This holiday season, give back to the brewing community when you join the American Homebrewers Association. From November 8th through December 15th, purchase an annual membership and the American Homebrewers Association will make a $5 donation to your choice of beer for boobs, soldiers, angels, hops for heroes, or the Michael James Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling. Learn more about these nonprofits and how to donate directly by visiting homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental and let's give back together. Yeah.